Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. I am very excited to have my guest, Mr. Sam Weaver. Sam is the president, CEO, and co-founder of Cool Energy Inc., a power conversion equipment company founded in Boulder in 2006 with a vision to economically generate clean energy from abundantly available sources. Sam has served on the Boulder Planning Board, the Board of Clean Energy Action, and has served on the Boulder City Council since 2013. And of course, Sam is currently the mayor of the city of Boulder. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me on Changing the Climate. Thank you, Ethan. Happy to be here. It's an absolute pleasure, as always. As I tell everyone, I love this show, and I love to get it started just by hearing a little bit of background about who you are and how you got to be where you are today. Great. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, Born and raised in Tennessee, went to school in California for engineering and moved to Colorado for all the reasons that people do. Um, lived in Boulder County since 1989 and in the city of Boulder since 2008. Um, got involved with renewable energy in 2006. I founded Cool Energy uh, with my father um, to do equipment that does waste heat recovery. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then also founded with my father a company called Proton Power, which is based in Tennessee. It does um, biomass to biofuels and to advanced materials. So I've got a background in renewable energy for the last uh, 14, 15 years and have always been an environmentalist at heart, um, focused on the natural world as well as now climate change. Excellent. What did you study at university? Uh, I was an engineer, so I studied optical engineering, so telecommunications and fiber optics, but I went to school at uh, California Institute of Technology, and there's a pretty deep background in just fundamental science um, that goes into that education. Yeah, so that's really cool. So you started the company with your father. What was he doing uh, before you guys started Cool Energy? So my father's been in energy and advanced materials his whole career. He started out getting a PhD at Oak Ridge National Labs in Tennessee. Uh, His initial 20 years of his career were focused on making components that went into um, nuclear power equipment. And then he shifted over into advanced materials. Um, Much of his work was around uh, kind of high-tech data storage equipment. So he focused on materials for disk drives. And then he um, had, as I said, he'd been in energy much of his career. So he moved away from the nuclear um, non-carbon a form of uh, power production into renewables in kind of a more classic sense. So um, he he just has a deep background in um, energy and materials. And so I've been hearing about those kind of subjects um, most of my life. That's pretty cool. So my my father's actually a a traveling jewelry salesman. So I've been seeing him do his business for years and years. And I actually was lucky enough to kind of become his apprentice uh, last year. So I went around and traveled with him and sold his wares and stuff. I'm curious, you must have had a good time starting a company with your father, at least I hope. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's been a great experience, to be honest, you know, Um, I, I worked in his companies when I was in high school and then did my own thing for 20 years after I graduated. And then, you know, we, we started talking in Christmas of 2005 about the climate issues and about 
alternative ways of power production, cool energies based around a medium temperature, low temperature heat engine um, to take available um, thermal energy from like coffee roasting and turn it into power for customers behind the meters. But that all, all that brainstorming um, happened in the 2005-2006 timeframe to kick off these companies. And yeah, it was great reconnecting with my father uh, when we're both adults and working together on important, important issues. Was there anything in particular that spurred that conversation? Was there some sort of event going on or were you guys just aware of the way things were going as far as climate change? We're aware of the way things are going. You know, I had, um, <clears throat> when I lived uh, in Boulder County and not in the city, I was chief of the Sugarloaf Volunteer Fire Department and I'd been on the fire department for more than 15 years. So I'd seen the fire seasons getting longer um, and seen, you know, I knew from my background that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was going to cause these issues. And I went to visit my father for Christmas in 2005 and he had a, a toy Sterling engine, which is a toy heat engine um, sitting on his bar and uh, it works by making one side hot and one side cold and and causing the engine to turn and make power and so we were just brainstorming for a week or two about how to use a device like a sterling engine at small scale power generation and so yeah out of that brainstorming and we went on into biomass as well and so um, based on a couple of weeks worth of brainstorming, uh, we submitted a couple patent applications and, and founded the two companies. And since then, Cool Energy's been awarded 10 patents and Proton Power's probably been awarded another 10. How much work? So you're, you're on the board of Proton Power, is that right? Yes. And so Cool Energy has entered a phase where we're focused on licensing our technology at this point. So we built five generations of prototype and design and engineering work. And so we're focused on licensing the technology on the, and so I've, I've been full-time at that work since 2006. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as we moved into a licensing mode, I've started taking on more work at Proton Power, mostly in looking at how to use some of the um, advanced materials that come out of the biomass process for things like battery storage and for um, material reinforcement. So I, I've mostly been, uh, as well as being on the board and kind of doing business direction with Proton Power, been doing some research on applications of some of the outputs of that technology. Well, that's very interesting. I'd love to definitely talk about Proton Power as well. I'm curious. So I'm just coming to the end of my first year uh, in the real estate business. So I'm curious what it looked like from Christmas 2005 to Christmas 2006, what that first year was like for you starting Cool Energy and your, with your father. Well, it was really great. I mean, so Christmas 2005 is when we brainstormed. We founded the company in March of 2006. And so the first almost year was opening the office, finding people to work on the project. I needed mechanical engineers and electrical engineers to do design work. And so the first year was really once the patent application got submitted and the, the charter for the companies were drawn up, it was looking for space. So there was real estate there. Hmm. It was um, hiring people to work on it. So by the end of 2006, we had three engineers and myself working at the company. And um, so, yeah, it was a lot of logistical work at first. And then once, once we got the engineers hired, it became more about how to make the equipment at a scale 
that would work for homes. At first, that was our, our target market, and then we shifted up and uh, had more of a business-to-business -business approach. So at the beginning, we were just prototyping. We were building small bench scale prototypes for the first year, 18 months. And then once we got those up and running and proved our concept, we did um, larger scale. Like I said, first of all, we were aimed at a number of kilowatts, one to three kilowatts for home scale power production. And then by the end, we had moved up to 25 kilowatt machines, which could power 17 homes if they were run continuously for applications like coffee roasting and waste heat from internal combustion engines. Could you explain how the product works to someone who's maybe not engineering or, or science-minded? I'm very curious. Sure. So let's take coffee roasting as an example. When um, coffee is roasted, it's put into a bin, it's heated up to um, maybe 300 degrees Celsius, and then the stack temperature, the exhaust that comes off the coffee roasting, that um, gas temperature might be 500 degrees once it's been heated up to clean up some of the pollution that comes off of it. So you've got this hot gas that's going out of the building. It's thermal energy that's simply wasted. We can put a heat exchanger in that exhaust gas. We can take the heat out of the gas and put it into our engines. And by making a hot side and a cold side in our engines, we can spin an alternator that makes electrical power. So at the end of the day, we take heat that's being wasted out of a smokestack and we turn it into electricity behind the meter, which helps power the equipment and power the lights and all the electrical in the building. So it's just taking a resource which is currently being wasted. It's the heat that comes from natural gas or electricity to heat the beans up. And we take the byproduct and we turn that into clean electricity behind the meter. Very cool. How do you create the cold side of the machine? The cold side is just ambient temperature. So we okay. circulate uh, a mix of water and glycol between a radiator that sits outside and uh, that circulates the cooled water into the engine where it heats up a little bit and then it goes back out to the radiator and cools off. So the cool side really is just atmospheric temperature. Interesting. Yeah. So I have someone similar coming on. There's some sort of company. I think it's called like Red Band or Red Brand. Mm -hmm. Someone's You've heard of them. Yeah. So I have I one have, of... Yeah. Yeah, one of my friends from Citizens Climate Lobby, I think is coming on next week to discuss that. So it's very interesting. I'm curious, what do you think is the future for companies like this? You mentioned you had originally thought you wanted to market it to more like consumers to put in their homes, but now you had moved into more B&B. &B. Who, who are you seeing adopting this kind of tech? I think that it's mostly industrial and power generators. So in industrial, I talked to you about coffee roasting, but there's all kinds of chemical production that generates lots of waste heat. There's um, semiconductor fabs generate a lot of waste heat. Um, and then power generation. So diesel electric generators, um, which are essentially diesel engines, which turn a alternator. Those are used all over the world for remote power generation. So island nations, um, military bases, and remote um, areas in developing economies use diesel power generators and there's a lot of heat wasted 30 to 40 percent of the energy and the fuel goes up the stack and so you can capture the heat coming up the stack and you can boost the output by of the generator by 10 percent with no additional fuel so uh, in mm. one application for power generation it's a, a fuel economy enhancer 
and in places like um, chemical production, you're just making power out of the heat that's wasted. So it's everything from small scale, like mom and pop coffee roasting shops, all the way up to chemical um, production plants can use technologies like this. Yeah, that's very interesting. So as I had said, we're now 20 episodes into the show and I'm really starting to hone in the main topic is trying to find the most effective way to combat this, this challenge, which is getting carbon emissions down. And it's very complex and I'm not sure is there's no, there's no simple answer. So I'm curious, you've obviously been thinking about this issue for years. What advice would you give to the lower generate the next generation, or what do you think the best path forward is to reduce carbon emissions? That's great. Um, so it is, <clears throat> there is no silver bullet to this problem. And I talk about it being silver buckshot, which I got from other people who have been thinking about it for a long time. So it's a whole suite of applications, whether it's solar photovoltaic or wind or um, heat recovery, energy efficiency, um, reduced consumption. These are all elements of, of what goes into um, helping reduce carbon emissions. I think one of the key points is to make emitting carbon cost money. So carbon taxes, carbon fees, carbon tax and dividends. I agree. All those schemes are really important because they tell the market, A, it's important that you do whatever you're doing without emitting carbon. And so there's a lot of kind of half measures, which include things like tax credits for solar, tax credits for um, electric vehicles. And those are all good as far as they go, but they're not really holistic. And so I think carbon, carbon pricing is one of the big levers that's available. I think individual change is another big lever. Um, so educating people about what the priorities are in individual action, like food waste is like number four on the drawdown list of ways to you know, reduce your personal carbon footprint is waste less food and eat less meat. Um, so, you know, I think it's a combination of setting up incentives that are reducing carbon emissions. So you get paid to reduce carbon emissions and then educating people on how their personal actions, some easy ones actually, um, can impact the amount of, of, uh, carbon that they generate in their daily lives. And it's, it's very interesting how making these changes, people are afraid of losing money and having to pay taxes on carbon and stuff. But t- like stuff like what your company does is taking something that's already being wasted and reusing it. And then renewable energies are actually less expensive because we don't have to pull it out of the ground. We just you have a system that's constantly recycling things. So I think kind of shifting the mindset as this is an opportunity versus this is a burden on changing your lifestyle, I think would be beneficial. But um, yeah, w- what are your thoughts on, on the timeline as far as climate change? Because I'm kind of in this manic mode where I'm, well, I'm also very young and getting my business started, but trying to work as hard as I can um, now because I feel like we're on like a ticking clock. I'm just curious what your thoughts are as far as when this needs to be done by. Well, I mean, scientists that are much smarter than me have told us the answer to that question, and it's we have to be in 80% emissions reduction by 2050. Um, Mm. And that's, you know, people will debate whether that's fast enough or not, but I'll tell you that that's extremely aggressive. You're talking about changing the energy system in the world uh, off of fossil fuels um, and away from combustion into non-combustion sources of, of power generation. That includes cars, that includes industrial power that includes uh, electricity generation, all of that has to shift 
in a really fundamental way, and it has to shift within the next generation or two. So there's no time to waste. We've frittered away 40 years. We've known about this since the 80s when I was in school at Caltech in an environmental engineering class, probably 87, 88. I had a professor look out at our whole class and say, here's the keeling curve. Here's the CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere. Here's what it's going to do. And this is going to be your generation's problem to solve. And that was in 87. And we have wasted an enormous amount of time between then and now. And um, I can't, I can't think of a problem that's bigger for um, your generation and coming generations to face up to. It is a transition that has to be made. Um, who's going to suffer if we don't make the transition will be the people with the least means. It will be the natural world. It will be species. We're losing species at a rate that is unprecedented, except in the great extinctions of um, Earth's history. So there is no more pressing problem. Um, we have to think about the other equity issues that come up. When you talk about a transition like this, you can't just have it work for wealthy countries or wealthy people. It has mm -hmm. to work for everyone. So not only does the price have to be low and fair, but it has to be a set of solutions that everyone can access because if we don't, the people who will suffer the most are the ones who have done the least to cause the problem. So it's a moral imperative to solve and it's a moral imperative for wealthy countries like ours to solve and it has to be done in the next couple of generations. And I very much appreciate the contributions you're making, including coming on the show. It really means a lot to me. Um, what have we been doing for the last 33 years and what can we learn from our lack of action to kind of move forward? How can we make the next 33 years much more effective than the last few? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I, I think a couple of important things have, have happened. Um, wind energy came about, right? So wind energy, you know, there were wind turbines when I would go out to Palm Springs to go rock climbing. You could see the, the first, glimmerings of wind power were starting in the U.S. in the mid to late 80s. And it was considered wild-eyed and expensive and an environmentalist dream. And since that time, in those 33, 35 years since then, wind power is now the cheapest source of electricity generation when you're wow. in the right areas, right? So I was full of wind turbines. who never would have imagined that. Um, Colorado, Eastern Colorado is full of wind turbines. California, all up and down, is full of wind turbines. So Nordic states, a, I believe, as well. Nordic states as well, right? So that's been a huge, huge change in perspective. Solar power, similarly, about 15, 20 years behind. But at first, solar could only be used for NASA projects and space projects because it was so expensive or very remote power generation off-grid. But now it's cheap enough that it competes with all fossil fuels and competes with wind. Um, and so, you know, the shift to renewables requires some kind of storage because the sources, the sun and the wind are intermittent. And so you have to have some way to balance the people's need for electricity and that timing with the timing when the power is available, when the resource is available. So battery storage uh, is really important. It's come a long way. So many of the, foundational technologies over the last 30 years have evolved incredibly far and incredibly fast and are now practical solutions at scale to our carbon emissions problem. And so then we look ahead, what do we need? We need 
electric vehicles at scale. We need to electrify our home heating systems at scale. Um, so shift from natural gas um, to electricity and electrical heat pumps. We need to have really efficient commercial buildings, but also shift them to electric heating and electric cooling uh, and make those more and more efficient. So the suite of technologies is now in hand in a way that it wasn't 30 years ago. So that's a big difference. Setting up the incentive structures for putting those technologies in place rapidly is the job of regulators, job of governments, job of non-governmental organizations to lobby for. So we're at the point where the technology development remains important from a cost perspective and also being able to do things like heat recovery where you've got wasted heat. Um, so there's still work to do on the technology side and mm -hmm. on bringing technology to market cheaper and cheaper, but that is going on. And so I really think the shift needs to be both in consciousness, which has happened. There's a lot more, you know, climate change wasn't a term that people really understood 30 years ago. Now it's front and center. So I think the next steps are what we hope the Biden administration will do, which is roll out um, assistance in a lot of ways, financial assistance to bring these technologies to scale. I'll talk about one, which I think is really important and it's inexpensive, which is loan loss guarantees. That's a weird term, but what mm -hmm. it means is the government says, <clears throat> um, private industry, you can put up financing for these renewable energy projects. If the project fails, we will cover the cost to repay the loan. So after the assets are sold or whatever, if there's still a gap, we'll cover it. Those loan loss reserve programs often don't have to pay anything. The projects are successful on their own. And so it's really just a government backstop that says, if you try these projects and they make sense and we sign on that it should make sense, if there's losses um, because of failure of the project, we'll cover the losses. You're not covering the whole project cost, you're just covering a loss and you don't have to cover it for more than one or 2% of the projects. So the German government did this to incentivize solar in rural areas and it worked out really well. Um, we started doing it early in the Obama administration, and then there were some bad headlines around Solyndra, one of the projects that did fail. And that kind of took the wind out of the sails of this government backing of loans for renewable energy projects. And that was, it was a failure of imagination because having a handful of failures is always gonna happen, it's expected. Mm -hmm. But these loan loss programs typically don't have to pay out very much, you know, one or 2% of the entire amount of the loans they cover, but they, they provide assurance for the financial community that they can and should back these type of projects. So I think the next level of innovation really is on the policy side um, yeah. to help move the technology from development phase into deployment. Well, that's a great transition to talk about what inspired you to run for mayor. Because is, this is your first year as mayor, right? Mm -hmm. What an exciting hey. year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have picked a better year to be mayor, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I know people are suffering, but uh, I know Boulder seems to be doing pretty well. I'm not, I don't really look at case counts, but, you know, I look around and society hasn't collapsed in Boulder. We haven't seen too many smashed windows or anything like that. So 
That's good, I guess. What, what is it that inspired you to run for mayor in the first place when you seems like you're doing lots of different things? You're on the board of Protein, Proton Power and you founded this other company. Why, why go into the government? That's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> as I got into the 2008 to 2010 timeframe and we had been making good progress on the technology at Cool Energy, I started to realize that one of the barriers, especially for residential projects, but turns out for business as well, is utility policy. So you have these monopoly utilities and they don't make money from third party solutions that are behind the meter that reduce companies and, and homes demand for power. So there's not a real desire on the part of utilities to have these distributed solutions get to market. And so as I looked at where the um, levers of, of power were there, it's at the state legislature, at the Public Utilities Commission, and it's in cities. And so I got involved with the municipal electric utility um, effort in 2011. And so spent a long time really studying up on whether a muni would be good for Boulder. And mm -hmm. the answer you, was, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, would you mind explaining what municipalization is to someone who doesn't know what it is? Absolutely. So it's when a city owns its own electric power system. So a municipal electric utility as about 15% of the U.S. population is served by are when cities own their own um, distribution system for electricity and operate it. So Fort Collins is a great example. Fort Collins runs its own electric system. Um, Longmont runs its own electric system. We do and, not currently. And we do not. And so Excel Energy is our electricity supplier in Boulder. Um, and at the time I started working on this, Excel Energy was one of the dirtiest utilities in the country. They burn wow. more coal and more natural gas. And so at the time, the impetus for the municipal utility was really focused on transitioning more rapidly to renewable um, electricity. So that's what drew me in, was that conversation about what can the city do at a city level to push for renewable energy. And that, that municipalization effort has had a lot of impact, I think, on Excel's thinking. And it's been a lot of fighting, um, but that's what drew me in. So you asked the question, I see... Yeah both sides. I see the technology side and I see the public policy side. And so I was interested in working on both. Yeah. How, how big a role do you think local governments do have in the fight against climate change? It's enormous. I mean, the, the local, every, every level of government has an important role, but the local government is what touches people and what works for renewable energy and energy efficiency and electric electrification those are all very localized questions right because in some places you don't have as much wind or as much solar in some places people are you know more focused on energy efficiency in ways that work for their climate right so we have climates that are cold we have climates that are hot we have climates that are in between and so municipal governments are really important in driving the conversation up to the state level but they tailor the solutions for what works for their climate, for what works for the disposition of their people. And so cities at every level are being much more activist on this subject. I went to um, Bonn, Germany, I think in 2017 for one of the IPCC conferences. Cool. And that was the first conference where they had 
mayors of cities across the world convene in their own session and talk about how cities were going to be part of implementing the IPCC recommendations. So what's called sub-regional governments started to mm -hmm. get elevated. So it's not just nation states that are making these international agreements. It's how within the nations, they're devolving power to their states, which then devolve power to the cities. So it's a recognition that you can't just have international agreements without having the states and the cities involved in figuring out how they work. So I, I would say that cities are, are one leg of the stool of how we move forward on climate action. Yeah, uh, I would definitely agree. And it's, it's very interesting for me having just finished this first year of this climate change realty company and knocking on almost every door in town and talking to people and seeing how, so, you know, not everyone loves to have their door knocked on, but how positive people are to the idea of just someone knocking on their door and talking about climate change or knocking on their door and saying, hey, I donate 50% of my profits to fight climate change. And there's so many climate scientists in Boulder. So, uh, yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Boulder and in specifics role in this fight against climate change, because I'm planning to keep my message going out. I'm hoping to reach more and more people on this podcast platform, just kind of like to be an example to the rest of the world. And I think Boulder does that both with startup companies and with just um, study of climate change in general. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're super fortunate in Boulder. We have to recognize how privileged we are. Not only is it a beautiful place to live, but we're surrounded by people who have deeply informed perspectives about what's going on in climate and energy. So, of course, we've got NOAA and we've got NIST and we've got the university, which has the University Center for Atmospheric Research, UCAR, and just down the road, we have NREL. So with this knowledge and with this informed population, we have a lot of responsibility that comes with it because we know uh, what the impacts are. So as a city organization, because we are representatives of a lot of these people, we have to take um, a leadership role seriously in the state and at the national level. And so the municipalization work was part of that. Separately from municipalization, we've adopted some very aggressive climate goals to get to 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Beautiful. We have reduced the carbon footprint of the city organization by more than 35% since 2005 using energy efficiency and um, solar power contracting. Everything that we can do within the current state regulatory structure, we've been applying. We had our rental stock efficiency um, has been brought up to kind of current standards through um, regulation that we put in place about um, the energy efficiency of rental stock in Boulder. We have some of the most aggressive new building energy codes in the country, and we're headed towards net zero for all new buildings by the mid 2030s in yeah. Boulder. So the city has, I can't list them all now because there's so many, but there are many, many initiatives within the city. Probably the biggest one, the most important one that's been framed up in the last year is the Climate Mobilization Action Plan. And that reframes our thinking so that at the center of everything is equity and resilience. And mm -hmm. that means that when you think about energy efficiency regulations or you think about 
power procurement or you think about incentives, they have to be equitable. They can't just be for wealthy people. Um, resilient resiliency projects that let us ride out storms and floods and fires need to be focused on supporting not just the wealthy areas of town, but but areas of town that have less wealth and less access. So the Climate Mobilization Action Plan is kind of a rethinking that starts to look at not just technology and not just efficiency programs, but the people, how the people relate to the programs, how they participate and are served by the programs. We've also started looking at things like soil health and carbon sequestration and how agricultural practices on our open space impact carbon emissions. So uh, I would say that our thinking has grown more broad where it first started focused on efficiency, renewables and, and electric cars. We've now graduated into focusing on equity and resilience as the heart of the, the climate commitment that we have in Boulder. So there's been an evolution in Boulder and that evolution is something we try and export. Um, I'll say one more thing before I let you ask another question, which is we were one of the founding members of Colorado Communities for Climate Action. So it was the city of Boulder, Boulder County, Aspen, and a few other cities that formed the statewide coalition of cities and counties that are focused on this issue. And we've grown, right. I forget what the number, but to about 30 cities and counties that lobby at the state legislature for um, informed climate policies. And so that regional action is as important as what we do. So what we do in Boulder, we hope to create ideas that we share and we learn from other communities in Colorado to affect our state laws. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I was just going to ask you next, how, how can we spread these ideas throughout the, throughout the country? And it sounds like we're doing a, a, a good job in Colorado. There's some sort of focus on this. Is there any way we can spread these ideas without just leading by example? Is there any way to have the foster like discussions with mayors of other big cities like Chicago or Los Angeles or something like that? There are conferences that happen multiple times a year. COVID has brought them kind of to a halt, but um, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, ex-mayor of New York City, mm -hmm. has put a bunch of money towards convening um, Global Climate Action Summits. So there was one in 2018 in San Francisco that I attended for Boulder. Um, there's the um, work that goes on internationally that cities are now being more involved in. And so there are regional and national conferences that focus exactly on exchanging best practices from city and state levels. And then you have all of the other ways that ideas are exchanged at things like solar industry conferences and wind industry conferences, biomass power conferences. Those focus more on technologies, but they will all have sections about utility policy that go along with it because, you know, governmental regulations and governmental policy have a huge impact on industries. And so there's just a bunch of different ways that ideas get dispersed um, from Boulder out and from other communities into Boulder. 
Great. So just the last thing I want to talk about today is I believe, if I'm not mistaken, one of your primary missions or goals when, when uh, becoming the mayor um, and with the city council is to foster this healthy environment for Boulder businesses, right? And as an entrepreneur yourself, I'm sure you have a lot of experience. It's not so easy starting your own company. I can attest to that <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I'm just, just curious what you guys are doing at the city council to uh, make it good for these entrepreneurs who need some help, <laughs> especially now. Well, we like to think we have a really great entrepreneurial ecosystem in Boulder, which isn't a result of government action. It's a result of the creative people who live here, who have moved here, and who are concerned about these issues. So, you know, the market and the startup ecosystem kind of is its own thing and has started naturally, organically, and, and evolved. And we have a bunch of different sectors outside of renewable energy and energy efficiency. There's natural foods and there's there's outdoor products and, and there's aerospace and biotech. And, and so we try and foster all of those because they all help human health and enjoyment in one way or another. On the renewable energy and uh, climate side, we have had some grant programs where we have competitive applications from startups which are focused on efficiency and renewables. And we've given them some direct uh, awards um, to be able to take the next step in either developing a product or bringing a product to market. Um, and we work closely with the Boulder Chamber, um, which tracks the different clusters. And we try and make sure that we have um, business-friendly policies, but also um, as businesses develop, require them to pay the costs of their growth. Um, so we kind of take a balanced approach, which is we want to foster all of these companies. We want to be welcoming and inviting to them, but to the extent that they grow and place demands on say the city infrastructure or city resources, um, or increase the cost of housing, we want to have growing companies also pay their way. And, and that gets to the equity component. We don't want to be just a tech centric, um, city that doesn't have a place for people who can't afford um, high costs of housing to live here. And so there's a component on that equity side, which isn't really about climate and renewables, but it's about affordable housing. And it's I discuss about this a we... lot with people. It, yeah. it comes up a lot when I knock on their door and say, hey, I saw real estate. They're like, oh, it's so expensive here. Right, for sure. And so because of that and because of our affluence, um, we've developed these programs to Right now, about 8% of housing in Boulder is permanently affordable, whether rental or ownership-based, and we have a goal of getting to 15%. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we work on it all the time, and we're constrained by the state. We can't do rent control, and um, you know, there's other constraints on what we can do as a city, even as a home rule city. So um, not to get off the climate subject, but affordable That's housing fine. is another component because if you can have people living closer to where they work, um, then you reduce the carbon footprint that comes I from see. commuting. Yeah, no, I, I discuss this a lot and I'm, I'm curious, what are the, the measurable benefits of providing affordable housing? Well, I mean, I guess there's a couple measurable benefits. There's the benefit to the community of having an economically diverse um, population, right? So if you are, what what nature tells us is is that monocultures aren't good and they don't thrive. And so one monocultures. of the monocultures, like if we're all wealthy white people, right? Okay. So 
we're fairly white in this city, um, but we do have a substantial um, minority population as well that is often underrepresented. So when we talk about affordable housing and the benefits, well, of course, there's benefits to the people who can live in, in that housing. They can afford to live in Boulder and the school system and the amenities and the jobs are all part of the benefits for them. So there's benefits to the people who are in the program. There's benefits to our community and that we're more diverse than we would be without affordable housing in the community. And then from a climate perspective, you know, as we do infill and we have affordability as part of the infill, there's less in commuting. So Boulder put itself in a situation where we're a regional job center and we have 50 to 60,000 in commuters each day because we have so many jobs compared to the population. And I think part of the work of council going forward is to rebalance that so that we have more affordable housing availability, um, which might be permanently affordable, it typically is, uh, that keeps people close to where they work. And so there's a climate component as well. So social and then helping out the, the folks who need the support for housing and then climate. So those are some of the benefits of having a strong affordable housing program. Fair enough. And there seems to be a lot of support of that in, in this city, as I've heard on the ground from people. So I'm, I'm, ha- I'm excited to ask you this question because you've obviously dabbled in, in both. You, um, I'm curious what your p- thoughts are on the role of government versus businesses in climate change. If you think one is more important or obviously they need to work in, in, in sync. I always like asking people. I always, I'm curious about the top down versus the bottom up approach and the way I see it is businesses can kind of just be creative and like, and just figure out like, Oh, I'll donate half of my profits and that can be my contribution. Or you can create a company that, you know, gets rid of waste. Um, and now you're the mayor and you have this company and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. That's a great question. And I, I think it's an extremely important question as to how business and, and the private sector relate in solving these big problems. I'll go to the um, Montreal Protocol. So if we look back in the 90s, we had the ozone hole developing at the time. Uh, it was a pretty big hole and it let lots of ultraviolet rays in, which caused cancer and all kinds of other harms to living things. And so the ozone hole was found to be a product of uh, chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, mm. which were eating away at the ozone hole. And they were used in a lot of refrigerant project, um, um, products, among other things. And so the, the Montreal Protocol was an international agreement that says we're going to phase these things out. You know, over 15 years, there will no longer be these CFCs used because they're damaging the environment. And the U.S. took a leadership role. We adopted those bans early and we adopted, you know, timelines that were more aggressive than the international roles. So it was a new set of constraints for businesses, but it was new opportunities. So Dow and DuPont and other chemical companies got to work on developing alternatives for what was being phased out. They would never have done that development of environmentally healthier refrigerants if the governments hadn't said, we're going to make you stop selling those other um, products. And so these companies got very successful and they cornered the international market on their replacement products for what was being phased out. So government regulation is not job killing the way some conservatives will put it. To me, it's a new set of constraints and the most capable businesses look at these constraints as opportunities. There will be a new market segment in renewable energy or in electric vehicles or 
you know, whatever it is, because the government has adopted these regulations and the most capable companies become creative, they become entrepreneurial, they view the, the regulations as an opportunity for them to create or find a new market and to occupy that market niche as a first mover. So I think that, that governments and private industry work hand in glove at solving problems, but without the regulations, the government, uh, sorry, the private industries will just seek um, the most profit from the current rules. So mm -hmm. the rules really are just the rules of the game, right? And so if we're gonna play football, you got a certain set of rules. We're gonna play baseball, you got a certain set of rules. You wanna solve climate change and you have a certain set of rules and the private actors will adapt to those rules and they'll create jobs in you know delivering products to market that, that meet those requirements. So I think both are important. You can't have one divorced from the other. Sure. The regulations have to incentivize businesses to want to solve those problems. If you create an unsolvable problem with regulations that are too strict or unrealistic, then you get no solution from private industry and you, you don't solve the problem. So you can't have one without the other in attempting to solve these big problems. Yeah, and it definitely is a balancing act. Well, Sam, this this was thank I learned so much. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. What would you say to some of the the younger listeners who are just kind of getting involved in this space? How would you recommend they uh, they make an impact on these these um, huge challenges? Well, I'd say first of all, don't give up hope. <clears throat> so look around you and realize that there are many people your age who are like you, um, Ethan, trying to do the right thing, trying to incorporate um, both doing good for the world and doing well for the people who run and own the businesses. And so I think, you know, find your passion. And if your passion aligns with um, climate change or equity or social justice, follow that passion. Um, because if you let your motivation to help the world or help other people underpin what you're doing, you will always do well for other people and very likely do well for yourself. And so, you know, the young people today are coming up in a more complicated world than I came up in. And I think that, you know, in this world of complexity, uh, simplifying things is helpful. And so simplifying what you hope for out of your career like what is it that you hope to get from it and how do you want your career to contribute to the world can help you focus on what you want to do because it can be personally fulfilling at the same time that you're doing good for the world. So I think holding on to hope and um, forming networks that of like-minded people are, are the best advice I can give. I couldn't agree more. And um, it's been a real honor today, Sam. Thank you so much for coming on Changing the Climate. It's been great talking to you, Ethan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Everyone have Thanks. a fantastic day. Thanks. Good Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holidays to all. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.